Hello and welcome to We Recover Loudly, the podcast shaking up conversations about addiction, recovery and drinking cultures in hospitality. This podcast aims to break down the walls of silence around addiction and recovery within the industry. The episodes will be a mix of personal stories from myself and from other sober champions with experience of working in hospitality, as well as interviews with hospitality leaders who have provided training and resources to assist in creating sustainable workplace environments for you and your teams. We will discuss mental health, stress and other challenges in the industry that can lead to addiction, challenging the work hard, play hard mentality. My name is Shell. I am not a mental health professional or sober coach. I am, however, someone with lived experience of addiction and recovery who chooses to share her story to help others. Because when we recover loudly, we stop others dying quietly. So let's get loud. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, The Burnt Chef Project. The Burnt Chef Project is a globally recognised, not-for-profit social enterprise. They're fully committed to making the hospitality profession healthier, more sustainable, by focusing on people's well-being first. Launched in May 2019, the Burnt Chef Project was set up with the sole intention of eradicating mental health stigma within hospitality. They offer free resources online, such as wellness action plans and team checking guidelines. You can also book mental health first aid courses through the website, as well as other bespoke training courses for your hospitality team. I've been an ambassador with the organisation for over 18 months and I'm proud to be a part of such an inspiring and forward-thinking community. For more information, check out their website and their socials. Links are all there in the show notes. Right, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of We Recover Loudly. Today I am joined by Rachel Kerlapsey. She is the Managing Director of the incredible charity Kelly's Cause. Now, Kelly's Cause was started in honour of Kelly, an exceptionally talented chef who very sadly took her own life at such a young age, at 23 years old. Kelly's Cause's mission from there is to improve and support the mental health and well-being of people who work in the hospitality industry. They do this by delivering hospitality-specific mental health training and offer loads of support across the UK. But Rachel herself is from Canada originally, so don't be surprised by the accent. She's got 15 years of industry experience, almost as much as me, which is weird because we're both only 22. So how how have we managed that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's so lovely to have you here today. And how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really excited. And I'm so excited by this whole project. And I'm so pleased that we can talk. Love it. So let's start, you know, 15 years ago, young Rachel, where did you start in hospitality? So my very first job was as a pot wash at this place called Good Earth Cafe. Shout out. I was 14 at the time, which is, I don't know if you can be younger than that, but it was very much like in the culture of my family, if you wanted something, I mean, I didn't grow up with any money, but also if you wanted something, then you got a job. And when you saved up enough money, you could get that thing. Cannot remember what I wanted, probably like a pink iPod Nano, just due to the time. But in any case, yeah, so I got a job there as a pot wash and I did not enjoy being a pot wash, but I did love the vibe. And I loved getting to hang out with people that were older than me, which I thought was so cool. And, you know, people who like smoked cigarettes and like thought about music, like it's so embarrassing, but I really was like, it opened me up into this whole world of people. And I really, yeah, I loved the energy of that. I loved being included. I loved the camaraderie that being part of that group. And I mean, like so many years later, I can really unpack why all of that was so attractive to me that I won't bore you with. And I'm sure it's quite predictable, but it really made me feel great. And I think I also, too, grew up being a bit horny for restaurants. So like I loved the idea of like being a waitress with an attitude like, where did I get all this shit? I have no idea. And it's so but 
I really love that. And I loved the idea of like the angry chef and the this and the beautiful food and like to fancy people. And I remember like reading when I was a teenager, I was like obsessed with Vanity Fair and they would often profile like restaurants and chefs and like front of house managers. Like they did a lot in that space. And I remembering being like, this is possibly the most important industry in the world. Like I really drank the Kool-Aid and this sort of glamorized version of what this could be. And I was also like pretty involved in not pretty involved. I shouldn't say that, but I like love drama and I was doing all this stuff in the arts. And so everyone I knew was like a waitress or a barista or a bartender. And I also had a parent, like my mom was like bartender for a long time, worked in restaurants for a long time because they did an arts degree and were an actor. And there was a lot, my mom really encouraged me towards it where she was like, it's super flexible. The money's fantastic. I mean, this is in North America when you can make actual cash. And, but you know, the work's really flexible. The money's fantastic. It's really fun. Like this is the best part John job you can ever have, like really, really pushed us to do it. And to which I'm really grateful because I think it was all of those things. Of course, now having spent so long in the industry and also in the industry in two different countries and gaining that experience. And I think just getting older, I can see why it is all of those things. And it's also a lot of other things that aren't very good. I feel like I got far away from your question. Love it. I mean, I think hashtag horny for restaurants <laughs> needs to become a thing. 100%. I also feel incredibly seen and heard by your description because I had the exact same intoxication with the industry from such a young age. And I don't know whether it's portrayed in the same way now because I am not the same age. But mm. when I came into that industry, it was, it was that excitement. It was that buzz. It was the drive. And it was rock and roll, especially uh, I moved down to London in my early 20s. That's where I got my first job in hospitality. I'm a late bloomer by, mm-hmm. by all accounts. I started working in a shoe shop at 15 instead. And exactly that, I was immediately swept into just the buzz and the the older people and the glamour mm-hmm. and the drinking and the drugs and the fast-pacedness. And mm-hmm. this was at a time specifically um, with cocktails and I was chatting with Thomas Mahunahe recently about that craft cocktail era. Mm-hmm. So it was about 10, 11 years ago mm-hmm. when it was almost like the first time anyone had put something, you know, was smoking it on a bar yeah, and it just yeah, exploded. Yeah. And these people, these bartenders were rock stars. Mm. They would walk into your bar when I was working as a waitress and it would be like, oh my God. And, you know, mm-hmm. it felt like, and you were saying about chefs as well, it literally felt like the most important and coolest industry in the world. And I do still think it is potentially mm-hmm. not maybe the most important, but certainly I one think it's also worth like pointing out that because and a lot of things inform this, the way it's so hierarchical, the sort of the fact that nobody has any power unless you're an operator. And so you gain power wherever you can. And so these godlike statuses and people that like really strive towards power and control. And I think it's because they're so ultimately at the whims of like owners that do whatever they want. But there is an underbelly to that. And like not to make it dark, but like, you know, my first job, I was 14. I was hanging around guys that were 19 and showing me sexual attention. Right. So it's like, that's not great. Like, is it great that I had access to like booze and cigarettes? I mean, I'm sure I would have found it anyway. It was the suburbs and I was bored, but it's like, you know, there's all kinds of reasons, like everything that I thought was so incredible about it. It also exposed me to like a lot of dark shit. And I feel quite grateful that, you know, nothing truly horrific ever happened in that time period, but it certainly could have. And I think back now and I see a 14 year old, like my partner's cousin was down the street. They're around that age. And I'm like, what the fuck was I doing cruising around in a 19-year-old's Corolla at that age, you know? And I think without being in the industry where those relationships were so normalized and the culture around that was so normalized, I don't know what I've, I probably, I mean, you're dumb at that age, but it's like, I don't know how to finish the point, but do you know what I mean? Like with everything about it that was so incredible, there's also, which is probably true of like literally everything in life, but like all these things about it that were amazing and that made me feel so good and excited and a part of something, they also made me really vulnerable to exploitation. And whether that's like creepy men or whether that's literally just like working more hours than I legally could have at that age or, you know, prioritizing sort of like pandering to ego or 
figuring out that interpersonal thing where it's like a certain chef you don't want to piss off. So you make yourself really small. Like what a thing to learn as a teenager, right? Like take up as little space as possible to protect yourself. I mean, it's useful in the world because the world is bad, but it's also like, it's an interesting inheritance from that period of time, I think. Yeah, gosh, so much I want to unpack in that actually, because does the industry... I'm trying to figure out, I think what I'm saying is what came first, you know, does the industry attract the type of personality like you, like me, that would therefore fit into those environments where there is a lack of safeguarding or was it the other way around? You know, like what point of, I mean, we talk about responsibility a lot on this podcast when it comes to um, addiction, when it comes to stress, when it comes to mental health and stuff, you know, what kind of responsibility does it lie in in terms of that environment and the way it attracts certain types of people versus that's the type of person you would have been if you'd have worked in a bank or if you had worked in a supermarket? Well, I think, you know what I mean? Yeah, you bring up something really important. And I think it's one very important to clarify that, I mean, even Kelly, for example, who the foundation is named after. Kelly didn't die because they were a chef, because they worked in restaurants. Of course not. But when somebody with mental health stuff is in a space that is so stressful, where there's so much harassment, it's going to exacerbate what's going on for them. So I think it's not that hospitality causes any of this. And I think that's really important to clarify. But the conditions that we work under in the industry absolutely exacerbate things that are pre-existing, whether that's mental health, addiction, whatever. So I just want to make that really clear. But I think also, I think a lot about how similar so many of us are. And that's all of my time in restaurants. There's something about, I think, particularly when we're young, who needs to be working. So I think that's a good place to start especially as a teenager or a young adult or somebody in college, if you have a part-time job at a restaurant, you probably don't come from like a great deal of inherited wealth. So there's an economic incentive to being there, obviously, which means that a lot of people are coming from poor socioeconomic backgrounds. And that doesn't mean like, you know, mental health affects all of us, but it means that you're less likely to have access to support. And if you're from a household, for example, where both parents are working or where there's only a single parent, there's probably less supervision. Then if you come from a high income family with one working parent and a parent who's around all the time who like might have access to different kinds of resources and support, even the kind of school you go to, if you go to a private school and you have a one-on-one session with a guidance counselor every three days, or, I mean, I don't know what's going on at private school clearly, but presumably something like that, there is just like more diligence supervision. There's smaller class sizes. Whereas if you're going to a public school where there isn't that kind of support, there's 30 kids in your class, the stuff you have going on is so much less likely to be dealt with. And so I think it's also, yeah, for young people, it's like people that are going to come from a poor socioeconomic background, not always, but often. And the reality of that and then the intersection of who else is there, who else is in that space. And I'm definitely not talking about operator level because then you have this disparity between people that own and run restaurants or in executive positions and the people that are working for them. And something, a massive issue is the disparity between the lived experience of those two groups. And so people that are making decisions versus the people that are being impacted by those decisions are in two different lived experiences. So you get all kinds of fucking weird decision-making that does not serve the employee. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So another big group of people that we see in restaurants, less now because of Brexit, but it's a lot of people that are immigrants. So people that have less money, they're away from their communities of origin, and they don't have the support systems they would have if they were at home. And so all of that, like you're taking this group of people that are inherently quite vulnerable. You're also, it's a group of people who literally need to please at all costs, a little more front of house than back of house, but in back of house, it just exists in this different way where it's more internal as opposed to external, which it is for front of house, but I think it still applies. So there's this like persistent people pleasing. And I remember working, this was a few years ago, this manager was having a horrible time finding good part-time staff. There's a musical theater college down the street from the restaurant. I was like, genuinely go and recruit some of those kids. You've never seen a more perfect fit. Like those kids are primed and it's the same impulse that an actor has where it's like, have to be good, have to impress you, have to da da da. And I think if you're naturally a people pleaser, the job's an amazing fit and the feedback you get from people feels amazing. So you get really addicted to that attention and then you stay. 
So when you get like vulnerable people excluded from communities of origin, they don't have a lot of money, especially here where the wages are so poor, they have a natural inclination towards people pleasing. It's like when you get all of those factors together, those are also people that are more likely to have unstable housing. They're more likely to mismanage with addiction or not have access to the resources that they need. They're less likely to seek support outside of work. All of these contributing factors get together. So chicken or the egg, I think the industry, because of the nature of the work, attracts a certain kind of person, some out of necessity, but also out of personality for sure. Another element of that, that I, I'm like backtracking on myself, but another element of that that's important. And I know you just talked about this on a previous episode, but that idea of like work as family, I think because you work so many hours so close together and you do trauma bond with the people you're around, it's like summer camp, but like fucked up. And so I think for folks that might be a little bit lonely or maybe struggle to connect or maybe grew up feeling a bit of an outsider, restaurants give them a feeling, and I can speak, that includes me, a feeling of camaraderie, support, engagement, connection that they may not find other places. So it makes those environments really precious to them. And thus they're more susceptible to putting up with poor behavior or bad environments. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely attracts a certain kind of person, not exclusively, but often there's like themes that we see or like, yeah, there's stuff there for sure. But I think the industry can also take someone who might have none of those characteristics and create space for them to creep in. So I definitely know people who would have had poor mental health or not had great mental health, but, you know, never sort of at a crisis point. And by working in the industry and working in those environments, all of a sudden they're at a 10. With addiction, I know people that are substance misusers and like, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Then they start working in the industry and all of a sudden their behavioral pattern around addiction increases, 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 and they end up not having to be sober, but choosing to be sober out of necessity. So all of that's important. And I think it doesn't do us a lot of favors to parse that down, to be like, is it the industry or is it us? It's all of it. And I think that when you ask about responsibility and sort of like whose lap does this land on, I think that operators and the industry as a whole need to recognize the reality and the lived experience of the people that work for them, which is an enormous percentage of people in the UK that work in hospitality and like below the management level, sort of. When you understand that the people that work for you are more susceptible to poor mental health, are more susceptible to addiction, it's your impetus to create safeguards, to train people adequately, to be understanding, to be careful about the way that substances enter the workplace. I think that there's a real ignorance, whether that's on purpose or not, to acknowledge the starting point for a lot of people in the industry, because then they'd have to do something about it. And that's not only time consuming and stressful and perhaps makes you liable to stuff you don't want to be liable for, but it's also fucking expensive. It's expensive to train people. It's expensive when people have time off. It's expensive to recruit enough staff so that you don't have people on, you know, 100-hour weeks. It all costs money, and the profit margins in the industry are abominably low. They're unsurvivable. So I also don't, in terms of, like, quote-unquote blame, I don't put that blame at the feet of the operators because most people I know, if they have the cash, will do it, but they don't have the cash. So it's like... Then you get into questions of like, okay, well, is the government liable, like in terms of reducing the VAT or providing subsidies or making training, like the training we provide at Kelly's Cause subsidized or free? Like, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if there's that, like you say, it's about having your eyes open. So if you acknowledge that we are an industry that attracts a certain type of person um, and you flip it. So rather than being like, oh, turns out we have attracted this type of person. It's almost expect that to happen. Expect that because, and put that safeguarding in mm-hmm. first rather than it's that retrospective. And I got diagnosed with ADHD last year and so many people that I have worked with are also being re-diagnosed or- it's and so I common in the industry. So common in our industry. And the reason it's so common or the reason that we're attracted to this industry, you know, because of that incredible intensity, those dopamine hits that you get time and time again, every time someone tells you you've done a good job, you know, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. Crisis control, like literally mm-hmm. crisis hits. It's like we come into our prime. Mm-hmm. And 
Therefore, however, without the knowledge that you have people within the team that have got this neurodivergence, and in fairness, I, like I said, I was only diagnosed last year, it meant that there was no support in place to help me, to show me what to do after the fact, what mm-hmm. to do when things did go wrong, which is when my addiction started. Or even how to organize started. your work in a way that's going to... Exactly. In a way that's going to be impactful. Instead, it was a case of like, Shell, you're behind on X, Y and Z still. Or at one place I used to work where I was the GM, I hate, I still hate sitting in a room with a computer doing like spreadsheet work, unless I get hyper focused on it. And then Mm -hmm. I'll see you in a week. But Mm -hmm. when it came to rotor writing, I would find any excuse to get up. And I used to physically have to be placed in the office by my team members going, we need a rotor. Mm. And they were like, if we see you on the floor in the next hour, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. one talked to her. And it's mm-hmm. hilarious and funny. And like, oh, look how the waitresses are trying to make Shell stay in the office. Mm-hmm. But actually, had I known that that was something that that was difficult for me, not because I was a shit manager, but mm. because of my neurodivergence, had there therefore been something put in place, I probably wouldn't have gone home feeling like a piece of crap every night. Mm-hmm. I'm the worst manager ever. I can't even do a rotor. What am I even doing? Drink, mm-hmm. drink, drink, mm-hmm. which is what happens. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's that increasingness. So, I mean, I definitely try not to go down that rabbit hole of what if, you know, we were saying about addiction, we were saying about drinking and alcohol consumption. If I had not been in our industry, if I had been working in an industry where there was more support for somebody with a brain like mine, would I have ended up where I was? Well, I don't know. It is. It's a scary rabbit hole to go down because we are where we are. But I certainly think that if we have the knowledge that people like me, people pleasers, neurodivergent, people who love to serve, which is a great asset to have, it's a great Mm. attribute to be that type of person, then perhaps the way that we're supporting them, i.e. not, Mm. is not a sustainable practice. Mm. I think also you bring up something really important and that's about access to support. So one, nobody has any time. So you're going to work at 11. There's only so much that's open and available to you in terms of support, the money, pursuing diagnosis, the amount of barriers that are in place to something like neurodivergence. But I think what's important, it's really important to look sort of at the 64% of women in hospitality engage in risky, harmful practices around drinking. So those are huge numbers, huge numbers. And then what also happens, so you have all of these people engaging in risky behavior and not all of them are alcoholics and all of them will pursue treatment, but that risk is there. And then everything around the risk is there. So like economic insecurity, because you're spending all your money on a bag, you know, housing insecurity because you're a shitty tenant, the odds of you potentially being assaulted or experiencing some kind of physical harm. So you have all of that, that like storm. But also say you decide, you're like, I need to go to a meeting. I want to go to a meeting. I need to be sober. Look up meetings in London that work with service. If you started a restaurant at 11 a.m. and you work until midnight and you don't want to wake up and go to like an early risers meeting at 6 a.m., there literally are not meetings. So that's huge. If you're working antisocial hours, can you get the support? If you want to schedule an appointment with a GP, but you only get your rota, on a Sunday night for the following week, which is actually my bugbear. People deserve monthly rotas. Anyway, whatever. So if you're only getting your rota on a Sunday night and you need to be on site because you have that much responsibility or there's no one to cover you, try scheduling a fucking appointment to talk to someone about your drinking or your mental health or your physical health or literally anything. It can't happen. So I think the fact that the rates of substance misuse in the industry are so high there's nothing we can really do about that, like at the grain. But what we can do something is about the long hours, the unpredictability, the exhaustion, the pressure to like, quote unquote, enhance performance. Like the amount of chefs I know that were like deep in bags just because like it was grueling and they were on the line for so long and they needed the energy and they needed sort of the hyper focus that cocaine gives you before you turn into an asshole. Like, it's tied in. It's all tied in. And that's what as operators, as advocates, that's the stuff that we can move to change. So I'm never, I also believe people are on their own path with this kind of shit. Unless there's immediate risk to life. I'm like, you take your time, but let's set up a environment where you have the greatest chance of success. 
100% and it's like you know it's that old adage or that statement you know you make time for people you make time for your wellness or you'll be forced to make what time for people's sickness and it's so right you know you go to the doctor and the doctors aren't equipped to help because our industry is unique in its the balance that you have to find within mm. to be able to be forward facing customer service smiley smiley to then go and manage those personalities in the kitchen look I know I'm sorry table two are an asshole but please can I just mm-hmm. have x because you're then managing that mm-hmm. ego to then run to the bar to go look they want a mojito no ice I know they're an absolute twat it's not a real thing but please can I have a mojito with no ice I mean we've all been there yeah. and uh, you know and and, and then you go back to the table and you're like mojito no ice what a fabulous choice how was well, that yeah yeah. Lich- yeah exactly because also I love what you've time, done with this drink yeah, <laughs> I know this should be in a book because also at that whole time, you, the waiter, the server, the manager are concerning yourself with what's in the till because that is your job. And that mm. is, and then, like you say, then you have the operator up here going, I want more money in the till, give me more, give me more. Mm-hmm. But what are they putting in place to ensure that we can give more? Well, unfortunately, a lot of places, nothing. And what happens is burnouts it's resentment, it's addiction. It's like you said, you know, you finish a shift at midnight, you're right, there are very limited meetings. And it is a space that we recover loudly is hoping to fill sooner rather than later. But you go to you sit after work, you have a lock in and you just explode. Mm -hmm. And that's your therapy. So Mm -hmm. in a way, and you're therefore seeking, seeking solace and therapy from a group of people who are also feeling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. completely you know savaged yeah. by a shift yeah and I don't think like for myself personally I'm not if you want to go after a long day and have some pints with your coworkers and like shoot the shit and talk about all the dumb shit that happened and process some of that and have a little fun I'm like absolutely the issue becomes either when that mechanism doesn't get turned off which is when you start living in addiction or when there's not other support in place. So if you go to your operator and you're like, I need consistent day off every week, just one, like every Tuesday, I need it off because I need to make an appointment with a therapist and get some support outside of work. And that's met with, we can't guarantee that. Okay, well then all you have is the pints you're drinking after work and the people that you're talking to. And it's not that that inherently is evil or bad and it can be great. And like, I have so many friendships, relationships, and like, I'm, mostly sober now, but it's like, you know, I don't like, that was great. And it was so nice to have a community of people that really understood what I was going through in a way that my friends and my family didn't. And so I don't begrudge that space at all, but I think it needs to exist concurrently with other support. And that's where we're getting it wrong. And I think that even as a manager, but also as a friend, the things that people would open up to me about, I didn't know what to say or how to support them. And now that I work in this space where like I spend so much time training and thinking about training other people around mental health support, I can pinpoint so many times where I got it wrong. And that's not my fault. I was 20 years old. I was in charge of a staff of, you know, 19 people. No one trained me. I didn't have experience in HR or people or social work. Like I don't hold myself to fault for that, but it's also the toll that takes then on you. And then you're like, Jesus Christ, that was heavy. I need to go out. I need to take nine shots. I need to ride one of those bulls that's like in a foam pit, you know, maybe not where you grew up, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we have those in the UK, but sure. I mean, I'm from cowboy countries, so there's some stuff I we do. I love that. Um, that but be like the new crazy golf vibe. <laughs> it's honestly, I don't recommend it. You get like terrible burn in your thighs. You get bruised because you get like, no, it's not it. I can't do it now. I can't even imagine. I'd last a second anyway, but it's like, that's a big, big problem. And I think that also lies at the fault of the operator and that sense that culture comes top down. And I mean, I can think of so many examples, but if I had an operator pull me aside and be like, I know that people keep telling you all kinds of stuff and everyone is really stressed and you're holding all of these people together. That must be really awful. What can we do to support you? And then when you tell them, they actually listen because those conversations happened, but they weren't actions. The most recent terror attack in London Bridge, which was now probably three years ago, four years ago. Anyway, they shut down London Bridge like totally. And there was a guy running about 
And the restaurant I used to work at was down around there. And they had to lock down the restaurant. They had to take all the customers downstairs and hide in the dry store until the police came and cleared them. Like they were in a lockdown because there was somebody out with, I think it was a machete or whatever, like literally murdering people. They're hiding in the dry store. The waitresses are in charge of this group of people that had been in the restaurant, young women who are like, it's going to be fine. Like, can I get anyone a bag of flour? You know, like the stress and the intensity of that situation, I cannot underestimate enough. So this, and I was going to meet one of them, like happen chance. And everyone comes upstairs. Eventually the lockdown's called off. Obviously every reservation has canceled one because the neighborhood is cordoned off and two, because like, nobody's like, yeah, let me just pop down. You know, that's not going to happen. And they called the ops manager and they just wanted to confirm like, okay, like we're going to close obviously. And the ops manager said, no, they were like, absolutely not. And they were like, we don't have any bookings. There's nobody on the street. And they were like, well, people, they're going to open the neighborhood and then people might walk by and want dinner. And I'm like, you've just had a 20 year old locked into your dry store due to a terrorist incident who's like, and you're going to make her stay in this space for the next six hours to serve pita bread to three people? Like, in what world? And that profit above safety, psychological safety, at literally every turn. And I mean, that also that I know lots of fantastic people that work in operations and fantastic operators that literally would have been like, we are closing now, everybody go home and please take care of yourself. And if you need support, here's how to access your EAP that exists. Absolutely. But it also doesn't in a lot of spaces. And I think about that all the time because I'm like, now I'm like, that is absolutely fucked up. That is so fucked up. And at the time it didn't even register. It was literally like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, that's shit. Like, how are you doing? That's so stressful. And now I'm like, pardon? Like, it's so gross to me. It's, yeah, it's just, wow. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that because you're right. It's just, it's a terrifying example. And yet at the same time, I can literally picture myself back in the day with operators saying exactly that you know like right Mm -hmm. let's crack on after Mm -hmm. really scary things Mm -hmm. happen and it's when you were talking about you know the after work drinks and the shooting the shit and you know those spaces are really important you make great friends you piss yourself laughing you know you Mm -hmm. make memories and stuff but even then if I look back now there was for me a lack of authenticity because everyone Mm -hmm. else was like oh yeah yeah right table four we're a dick but anyway let's have a shot I didn't feel that it was okay for me to go, do you know what, actually, guys, I really struggled tonight. Mm. And, and so instead, I would sit there laughing and joking and pouring the beers with everybody, go mm. home. And again, it was that, oh, my God, not only could do I feel awful, but I am the only one that felt that way. And I feel like it's, I think yeah. it's that it's that authenticity that those spaces need to or not need to but we need to figure out a way to still have those and I'm 100% not anti-alcohol and I'm Mm -hmm. pro option pro choice Mm -hmm, pro mm -hmm. curiosity Mm -hmm. you know pro conversation around Mm -hmm. it and I also was thinking about what you were saying there about that the support for the people who support you know we have to, Chris from The Burnt Chef, in the episode we recorded recently, he said, you know, you have to serve yourself before you can serve others, mm. which is a great 100% agree, but it does definitely feel almost like a pipe dream mm-hmm. sometimes because mm-hmm. you're right. You do the mental health training and then in some businesses, it's like, oh, no worries. You've got a mental health problem right now. Sarah did a course last year. Sarah this one's yours. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, it's where's the follow through, where's the Mm -hmm. continuation of support Mm -hmm. for those who support, because Mm -hmm. you're right, as a manager, often a young manager, we're often put in these positions, not necessarily because we're ready for it, but because there's no one else. So Mm -hmm. you go up the ranks quite quickly, you're suddenly in charge of a group of incredibly young people who have come from potentially different challenging backgrounds Mm -hmm. with different you know neurodiversion with a propensity for mental health already as are you Mm -hmm. you're put in charge of these people's lives and there's like you say there's nothing behind going you know what Shell you did a good job today I mean there was a girl once who was a waitress one of the places I worked and she called me and they were having a really really hard time with their mental health and I'm so ashamed about it. And I was out with my family. It was one of the first days off I think I'd had in about four weeks. I was mm. exhausted. And this person rang saying they couldn't come in. And I knew that my ops manager would be 
well we need to you figure it out sort it out mm. and I can remember saying to them can you come in for a bit and then if you feel better mm. great and if not then can you go home and quite rightly and I mean I should probably find this person actually and send them and apologize to them but quite rightly they were like I'm not coming in this isn't acceptable and, and they left it was many years ago mm-hmm. but at the time all I could think was they have to come in. I have no other staff. Yeah. I need a day off. I am yeah. dead. I am yeah. done. But instead, what happened was I got in trouble for not solving that situation in a way that didn't mean that they then made a complaint about me. And quite rightly, too, they yeah. should have made that yeah. complaint. Yeah. But it was one of the, it was just a catch 22. What was I supposed to do? Is the answer I was supposed to drop everything, leave my family, and go to work in a job? that I didn't own the business. I was employed by the business. And I think that the pressures of pulling in the money, the pressures of recruitment right now, the challenge that we have where we have so many gaps on our rotors, more so than what this was like six, seven years ago, Mm -hmm. means that people are making choices and making decisions that when they look back, they feel they're put in positions where all of the options are just all bad and Mm. then who gets the heat for that the young gms the -hmm. young assistant managers Mm. well why didn't you do x and y it's Mm. like well hindsight's 2020 where was my support where was my help to say Mm -hmm. if you have a team member like this these are the steps and i think we're still very far from having places go let's do employee mental health awareness tick box versus people engaging and creating in their culture Mm -hmm. that's the difference I think where we're at at the moment I think we do try and emphasize that with operators where if the culture in your business is already in pretty good shape absolutely send some people on training equip them with the skills they need to take care of other people to take care of themselves that is incredible and will help safeguard your employees and also your business if your culture around this stuff is poor or there's a lot of toxicity in the workplace and all of the stuff that goes along with that, you can train a few people and those people will not last in your business because it's not up to an individual to change an entire culture. It's not possible. And I've known some phenomenal people in this industry who have left. Because they've been working against the grain of owners and operators to implement changes, have gotten no support, bonuses being tied into margins and not like, do you have a team of people that have stayed for longer than three months? Have you shown consistency? Are your reviews good? Do customers return? Do you have a rate? Like that's where your success should be measured. But when it's measured at like, okay, what's my staffing percentage? And if it's, you know, more than 30%, I don't get a bonus this year. Like, what are you doing? And those people have left the industry, even though they were fabulously mm. talented. And I think that there's all, this- Yeah, all stayed and gotten very, very ill. Ill, absolutely. And there is, I want- hospitality and I believe that it is in some places and I believe that it definitely can be in more places a place where it's feasible to build a great career and have a good quality of life and it shouldn't be that big an ask but I want people to have time to spend in their communities I want people to have time to invest in their relationships outside of work I want folks to have predictability I want to see if people have consistent days off I want to see people get their rotas a month in advance so they can buy tickets to a gig so they can go see that great play that they're really excited about. I want to see all of that. I want to see more minorities progressing into executive and leadership roles where like the cutoff for that is absolutely crazy. And it's something the Be Inclusive report highlighted this week, but that there's so much diversity in the industry. And once you get up to a management level, it stops. And it's primarily white, middle class. And it's so like... I want to see that. I want to see people making decisions really, truly represent the people that they're making decisions for. Yeah. Are these type dreams? Am I asking for the moon? 
I was going to say, it feels like it. No, but it's not. And I think that's why it's exciting to be in this space now here, 2023, because it feels like there is an undercurrent of a movement. But as with all movements, they only become a permanence if there are enough people getting loud about it and Mm. there are enough people continuing to have difficult, uncomfortable, you know, edgy gritty Mm -hmm. conversations talk about things that people don't necessarily want to talk about because it doesn't serve them financially it doesn't serve them it doesn't serve them effect literally doesn't serve them so why are we going to go down that and I mean before I could literally talk to you forever we have to talk about Kelly we have to talk about Kelly Mm -hmm. so how did you meet so I never met Kelly she passed away before I met Tobiana but Tobiana and Kelly went to Cordon Bleu together and came up in Cordon Bleu, became really good friends. They both graduated and then they both went off and started working in restaurants all over the capital, both quite successfully. And within two years of graduating, Tobiana was a head chef at Cricket in Brixton. They were thriving at that. And Kelly really sadly had taken her own life. And the last place that they worked was the apex of every shitty restaurant you've ever been in every shitty chef you've ever encountered it had it could check all of those boxes and I mean Kelly's not the only person that this industry has lost whether that's to mental health to addiction to simply needing to survive and thus having to leave and go into something else if that's possible for them and what's so sad is that there's this I mean the saddest thing is that loss of life it's horrible and that person is missing out on their whole lives and we're also missing out on them we're missing out on their sense of humor and their joie de vie and their capacity and I mean this is sort of at the bottom of the list but also just a brilliant and creative chef who brought something different and exciting and what a shame and I think there's so much about the industry that we're like beholden to powers outside of our control So like the economic reality of operating a restaurant, it's literally horrendous. It's horrendous. My heart goes out to operators that want to do the right thing and can't, that want to give their staff a better balance and can't. And they literally can't. It's like 300 pounds is the difference between them opening the next week and not. My heart really goes out to them. And, you know, we're all of these things that we can't control. So when we're in this space in this time where it's so hard, where we're more attuned to how poorly some people are doing, we're more attuned to the suffering of our staff or our coworkers, when the economic situation is so horrible and impossible, where's the joy left, right? Like, where is it still fun and good? And that's in individuals that bring life and creativity and connection. And like, you know, I had these scallops recently from Paradise, which is a Sri Lankan restaurant in Soho that I'm quite obsessed with. They are honestly so good that I've been thinking about them for weeks for weeks and that is such a nice reminder and I'm like "Mm, that's it I've come here I've eaten something brilliant I'm like freaking out about it I'm so excited the waitress was excited I was excited like we're all having a good time around food like you know where you try I don't know you know it could be anything but it's like I'm like that's where the joy is and when we lose people that are talented and excited and passionate all of a sudden the opportunities for those moments start to slip away and we're going to have to celebrate Valentine's day pizza express next year. And I do mean to shade pizza yeah. express because it's absolute garbage. I maybe shouldn't and, say and, that. <laughs> like, and unless, of course they want to train with Kelly's cause in which case mm, pizza express. We have to create environments where people can flourish. And I think the tragedy is that we largely don't. And then when they don't flourish, we blame them. Mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. turning that camera around and going potentially this person didn't flourish because we didn't give them the support we didn't give them the opportunities we pushed them into something without the training without you know all of those things I mean everything that we've discussed this whole episode and again you know it's that it's that revolving door of like well she can't handle it he can't handle it so it's probably his fault off he goes let's find somebody who's stronger better faster quicker um, good luck with that smarter <laughs> all of that stuff yeah. exactly yeah, and yeah. and hello hence why do we have such a recruitment challenge now in our industry because these people that we keep spitting out for not being good enough 
are weirdly enough not being replaced by this imaginary person because they mm. don't exist because that's not how the world is I also um, too so I Kenny's just want to take a very brief moment before we wrap up just on like a slight note of optimism I must say that the conversations we've been having around this the reality is dark as shit but there has been a shift in the wind and the amount of operators that I have that reach out to us as an organization whether that's people we work with or just like people we don't and we'll reach out and ask I've got this person. I know that they have pretty bad anxiety. Is there something that I can like, can I be doing something or what would you do? Or, you know, I've got this chef, they've got ADHD and I, I like, they're not getting things done. And I'm getting frustrated. Like, what do I, the amount of people reaching out and asking for help and supporting their employees has increased so much. And that is so encouraging. And maybe I just have to think that to keep doing the work. <laughs> But I really believe that the majority of people in this industry, they love to take care of people. They love to create space for people. They love to create beautiful things that people can enjoy. That extends everywhere. People want to do right by their teams. They want to treat people well and have people succeed. And more and more, the stigma around asking for that assistance and help and implementing it is reducing and reducing. And I do feel excited about that. And all the horrible things that have brought us to people needing to ask for that support, very bad. And we've lost a lot of people, but I do believe that it's possible because I see it. I see restaurants doing it. I see big groups doing it that are succeeding. And it doesn't mean that everybody has an incredible experience there. It doesn't mean they don't lose any staff, but it definitely means that the people that they're fostering are going to stay in this industry for a long time and continue to make it somewhere you know, like the place we fell in love with, that exciting, cool, creative place with all these different people coming together to make something amazing. Like that's where that breath of life is, I think. And I just want to make sure that I mention that before people uh, go, yeah, into, want, go into their days. Oh, yeah, before people are handing their notice. No, I 100, <laughs> 100%, 100% agree. There are some incredible operators. There are people that are ahead of the curve. I mean, you've done some work with Hawksmoor I worked yeah. at Hawksmoor when we they had one site in Spitterfields and mm. to this day it was still so that's like 12 years ago to this mm -hmm. day it's still the best place I've ever worked they've mm. never no matter how big they've got no mm. matter how successful how many accolades they've never changed the culture that they have now is the culture that they started with and there mm. are other places that look to Hawksmoor and go how do they do it let's do it like that you mm -hmm. know and like you say they really are some absolutely incredible operators and it's sad sometimes when the focus does get skewed to to the other mm -hmm. however I think that again like we were saying those ones that are doing those good things let's get louder about it let's get mm -hmm. let's talk mm -hmm. about it let's go hey rather than just going like oh, well then thank you so much mm -hmm. you know let's start really kind of pushing them to the forefront and proving that there is a different way there really it's is possible you know? it's totally possible it's a hundred percent possible. Mm. Um, with Kelly's cause, what mm. kind of work do you do within restaurants, bars? What kind of thing can people come to you for? So we do sort of a wider range of things. The primary thing that we provide is hospitality specific mental health first aid training. So if you've never heard of mental health first aid before, it's like physical first aid, but for mental health. So it allows you to spot signs and symptoms of somebody that might need support, how to have those conversations, how to signpost effectively to resources, um, and how to help that person navigate different systems of support. It also includes how to take care of yourself when you're in those situations, which I think is really important. So around sort of boundaries and self-care, but like not like get a bath bomb, but like actually like how do I manage my own stress and survive as somebody who's supporting other people? So that's, but we make it all hospitality specific. So the course is from Mental Health First Aid England, which is very corporate. And quite frankly, if somebody who's just like worked in HR in some big bank comes to me and it's like, I'm going to teach you how to take care of yourself. I'm like, you don't fucking know me. Like, you know, it, it's not relatable. Um, and so we've worked with them to adjust the curriculum to be applicable to the industry, to use case studies and examples that you'd actually encounter in your jobs. And it's also, you can probably tell by how much I'm cursing, but obviously I come from a restaurant background, as we've talked about. Also, so does literally everyone on our team. So everyone training you has extensive experience in hospitality. Tobiana, obviously is a chef um, our content manager was a chef like we're literally all industry experience so we want to create an environment where people we really understand what people are going through they understand that we understand and at that footing we can start to have these conversations 
Um, so the training is a big part of what we do. We also support businesses of all sizes. So some of our members include like St. John, which obviously has a few sites, Inver, which is a tiny restaurant in Scotland that's fucking amazing and everyone should go to. Um, they've got, they're just a tiny restaurant. They operate seasonally. We work with Itsu, who are obviously quite popular. So a real wide array of businesses. And for them, we provide mental health policies that we build bespoke for each business. We provide support for their mental health first aiders. We provide the trainings to their team. And we also provide all kinds of strategies within their business to help support mental health. And that obviously looks, it really depends on the business. So to answer your question in a succinct way, which I haven't done this entire time, primarily we offer training and mental health support that's hospitality specific to individuals and businesses across the country. Oh, we also have a podcast called Beyond the Past. If you enjoyed listening to the supple sounds of my voice, head over there. We talk to great people from all across the industry. Shell will soon be one of them. So come on, like, subscribe, listen. We also have a newsletter called Tasty Bits where we highlight all kinds of things happening in the industry. We also like to shout out other people that are doing work like this. We have a jobs board. The jobs board is all about like, does the business have mental health first aiders on site and do they have a mental health policy? If they have those two things and we've seen them and we're like, these are solid, their hearts are in the right place, we'll advertise jobs. So if you are coming back to London or you're looking for a new gig and you want to know who we've been talking to and who we are sort of like, these guys got it, let us know and we can set you up. And a lot of what we do is just connecting people. So I have people reaching out to me asking about therapists that might have a hospitality background or, you know, how do I join a meeting if my service hours are crazy? And the hint is that you go online and you join a meeting in New York, which aligns really well with service times here. But that's what we do. And if we don't do it or you don't know if we do it, please let us know. Reach out. We love to connect with people. And if we don't have the answers, we can surely point you in the direction of somebody who does. Amazing. Yeah, I'll put all of the information of how to find you in the show notes. And the We Recover Loudly website is hopefully by the time this episode goes out, will be properly active and on the website, you're listed as a resource as well. So there's going to be lots of ways that people can get in touch with you. Thank you so much for everything we've discussed today. I've really enjoyed it. And as ever, as I end every podcast, it seems, end of part one. Looking <laughs> forward to part two. <laughs> Me too. And I'm excited to have you. We can have part two on Beyond the Past. And I'm so excited to keep talking to you. And I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. And absolutely, any way we can support it, let us know. Right. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to We Recover Loudly. Please stay tuned for future episodes, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn for more updates on at We Recover Loudly. If you're struggling with addiction and are looking for support, please refer to the resources listed in the show notes or alternatively check out the website www.werecoverloudly.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, fill in a contact sheet on the website and we will be in touch. We'd love to hear from you and have you share your experiences. This podcast has been produced in association with The Burnt Chef Project and hosted by me, Shell, recovering loudly so that others do not die quietly. Quietly.